Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, The Coming Wrath of God. section here that we began last Sunday. Highly recommend if you weren't able to be here because of the weather and such last Sunday that you go take a listen, not because what I said is so important, but because of the argument that is building in the text. Remember we've said the book of Romans is going to cause us to think very deeply. There is an argument that is building and each point sort of makes, uh, makes understanding for us to understand the next thing that is said. Um, if you look in your bulletins there, kind of in the back in the notes section, I gave an outline of all of verses 1 through 16, the part that is in bold there, point number 2, that is today's uh, section that we're looking at. So verses 1 through 16 are kind of a unit. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 to give us some context of what we're looking at here. And for this second point um, throughout this whole passage, we're going to be looking at various verses within here because it's part of the overall message that's being given. So Romans 2, beginning in verse 1, let's read together. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O oh man? When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness, and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Please bow with me and let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we are coming to try and do the impossible. We, the finite creature, are coming to try and understand that which is infinitely beyond us. We who are weak and fallen and sinful and selfish, living with blinders on our eyes, are coming to try and behold what's beyond this physical realm and see into the heavenly. And God, we will fail miserably if you do not give grace. And so God, in weakness, we cry out to you just recognizing the reality that God, if you don't help, nothing good is gonna happen here. We long to know you. 
We long to know your truth. We beg you come and work miracles. We pray you beg and come and do the supernatural work that only your spirit can accomplish to shed light, to illumine, to enlighten our eyes, to be able to see. And God, we pray that we will be able to understand your truths, but then to move past just being able to to understand in our minds, God, to be moved to the place where we are We're stirred to feel the weight of these things. We're changed by them. And so I ask that you do that, God. I ask that you bless that as we study, we will come to see the temporariness of all that is of the earth, but the weight of eternity. Show us your glory. Show us your will for our lives. Show us truth about ourselves and this reality. But God, also help us to love and be thankful for the salvation you've brought in Christ, to see the weight of your wrath and to see your glory through your justice, your righteousness, and your wrath. So please, God, help us. Give us understanding beyond what we ought to be able to understand in this time. Please bless. Have mercy on me to preach, O God. Give grace to us in this time. We ask all this through the name of Christ. Amen. You may have in your literature classes in high school or college have some assigned readings from a book that was written nearly 700 years ago by a man named Dante Alighieri. And the book is titled Inferno, which is Latin for hell. And while we would have some disagreements with what Dante uh, wrote and believed, we can appreciate what he set out to do. The Bible uses incredibly strong language and at times metaphorical language to describe hell. And Dante set out to try to paint a picture in the reader's mind, try to, try to give some sort of imagery there so that we would be helped to sort of feel the weight of it in our minds, have some kind of imagery to understand it. And he was trying to then lead people on to Christ. And if you read it, especially as a Christian, you can't help but be helped to feel the length, to feel the misery, to feel more of the horrors of that place. But one of the lines that's well known from that work, and it's one of the ones that sort of sticks out to you, is that Dante imagines that as you descended the steps to enter this place of torment, there was a sign over the door that read, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. The Bible spends a great deal of time instructing us on the wrath of God to come. It warns us. It calls to us to to come and escape that wrath. In fact, that's one way that the message of the gospel can be summarized. And this message runs from Genesis to Revelation, given to us in different pictures. From the days of Noah, when the wrath of God was coming on the world, but God provided a way of escape and refuge. To the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, The message that the wrath of God is coming to destroy the city. Flee, run to be saved. This message of escape, the wrath to come, runs through the scripture. And it's also a way to sum up the message of the gospel. 
The wrath of God is coming on the world. And you have nothing to worry about if you've never sinned. If you've sinned, you have something to worry about. The wrath of God is coming on all who have rebelled against this God, but there is a way of escape. It's Christ. Run to Christ. Trust in Christ. And so the Bible um, repeatedly gives this call to flee and come to Christ. But not only does it give the call to escape God's wrath, the Bible also describes God's wrath. It describes it in ways to help us feel the weight of what is coming. And if you are here and you are not yet following Christ, not yet sure what you make of all of this, and a day like today kind of makes you wonder, is this what this people talks about all the time? Sin and guilt and condemnation and such. Look, we get it that it's a popular idea today to just pretend, pretend like there's, there's nothing to think about here. To just sort of sweep it all under the rug. It's a popular idea today just to ignore it and to just not even believe in God's wrath. To just to assume that that's sort of like old and talk. You know, in days gone by, people liked that kind of thing. Today, we like more of God's love and mercy. So that's all that we talk about. And many even accuse Christians of warning about God's wrath to be morbid. That guy's got to be such downers all the time. You Christians just won't let anybody have a good time. Friends, I, I just ask you to consider the only way that the subject of God's wrath and of the, the punishment and the torments of hell that is to come, the only way that that would be unnecessarily morbid is if it's not true. If it's not true, if the gospel is just a myth and everybody's fine, then yeah, we Christians are some of the most annoying people on the planet. What a drag. Why don't we just let people eat and drink and be merry and live their lives in everything? But if it is true, and just a very quick word search in the scripture, sometimes just, just, just type in the words judgment, hell, wrath. You'll find that more than 400 times in the scripture, the coming wrath of God is referenced and there is a call to run to Christ. This is not a light little paraphrase subpoint somewhere tucked away in one little place in the Bible. From start to finish, this is the message of God to the world. Like in Isaiah, when God calls out to the world and says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And I just really think that even if you're not yet convinced of the scripture, just sit down and be quiet and give 30 minutes of uninterrupted and honest thought to the subject. And you will be convinced. If this is true, and it's not morbid to talk about. It's also not unnecessary. How could you think of anything else? One of the princesses of England one time came out of a chapel service. And she came and addressed the dean who had delivered the message that day. And she came and asked him, is there really a place which is called hell? And the dean sort of him hauled around a little bit and sort of said, well, you, you, well, you, know, you know, the Bible says a little bit about it. Yeah, yes. And, and, and our, our statements of faith and theology and confessions, yes, there, it is, it is there. It is in our statement. It is in our beliefs. 
To which she responded, if that is the case, then why in God's name will you not speak of it? When we, when we think on this subject, if you want to know why a great deal of the modern church in America will not take the things of God seriously, then consider that it is a part of this whole package of superficiality to just ignore the concept of God's coming judgment, the wrath to come, and the reality of a hell that burns forever and ever. So many uh, within the modern church movement have just wanted to give this idea that God is just really smiling and mostly happy with everybody and his big agenda is he really just wants you to have more self-esteem. But even light reading in the scripture shows again and again and again this call. There is a wrath of God to come. You can't hardly make it through a single of Jesus' parables without him ending with some kind of reference to what comes to those who refuse to repent, being cast into the outer darkness, being torn to pieces into that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. To the one who rejects Christ, even in this room, so you who have not yet run to Christ, maybe you just keep telling yourself, I'm sure in the end, somehow I'm going to be okay. You desperately need to hear the horrors of that place to come. But also to the Christian. Once you come to faith in Christ, that's not the day that now, now we're past the point we need to learn about hell and the wrath of God and the judgment to come. One of the things that scripture shows us is we are to continue to grow in our understanding of these things because it is, it is affecting changes within us. When scripture says that God wants us to come to grow and to know the riches of what we have in Christ, and we've made the point that when you come to know the riches of what we have in Christ, it will transform you. You will not live the same. You won't look at anything the same. You will see money as insignificant. You will see the things of God as what matters. Part of what it means to come to know the riches of what we have in Christ is to know what we have been saved from. What torment, what agony has God rescued us out of because it is what we deserve and what have we been given in Christ? God wants us to know both the horrors of what we have been saved from, but also the glories of what he has brought us into and what is to come. And both of these will bring us to a new place of worship and gratitude. And early in this book of Romans, the primary point, the primary way that he is beginning is helping us to see the coming judgment of God. And then later when the book has fully explained the gospel, then comes the part where the glories of what we have in Christ are celebrated. So I've kind of told you from the beginning, hang in there. We're getting to chapter eight. But before that, listen, listen to me, Christian. We do not understand the good news until we understand the bad news. And we do not love, we do not love and cherish the good news until we feel the bad news. 
until we feel the awfulness of our sin and the wrath that I deserve, then we can fall on our knees in weeping, give glory to the God who saved me out of this and has brought me into this. So this argument is laid out for us. Here's the basic statement we're going to consider this morning. It is, it is very simple. There are some truths from Scripture that are not complicated to understand, but it takes us years and years to grow to where we feel the weight of truths. Here's the simple statement we're looking at this morning. The judgment of God and the wrath of God and the indignation of God are coming to every sinner. And then we're going to look at just two subpoints with that. The two subpoints are going to be consider the words that are used in this passage to describe what is coming. And then the second subpoint will just simply be consider the horrors that are to come on those who refuse to repent. So firstly, Consider the words here in this passage used to describe what is coming. Let's, let's, let's read through a few places again to just see the biblical language. Um, start in verse number two there. As he is making this argument, he says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly, that's, that's the sermon two weeks from now, rightly, the righteousness of God, the rightness of God in the judgment to come rightly falls upon those who practice such things and the such things mean the sins that have been described in chapter one. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? He continues on and you come to verse five. Verse five has more language along this. Verse five has one very simple phrase it's not very long, it's real quick, but it has stuck with me for years. He speaks of the unrepentant storing up wrath. I picture a sea. I picture a sea that belongs to each individual and every sin, every act of rebellion against God, the appropriate measure of wrath is poured into this sea and over the years it is filling up and filling up and filling up and the only thing that holds that wrath back is a dam and we might say that the dam has a name it's called God's patience the sea of the wrath of God has not come upon the wicked but it's not because God doesn't care. That's the conclusion that many come to. Because God's wrath is not pouring out right now, it must not be that big of a deal. No, what scripture shows us is that the wrath of God is filling up and filling up and filling up, but it is God's patience that is withholding it for a time. Scripture says that God's patience results in salvation. Aren't you glad the sea of God's wrath did not burst against you on the day before you turned to faith in Christ? God's patience is holding this back. But there will come a day when the dam is broken and the sea of God's wrath will rush upon the wicked with a force that terrifies them and they cannot withstand. And to the Christian, the sea of God's wrath for you was filling up. 
But the day came when the father tore, tore the dam down and all of the sea of your wrath came rushing upon Christ on the cross. He took every drop of the wrath that was owed to you and then stood up out of death. But those who refuse to repent are storing up wrath. And then continue on in verse 5, if you look at the language there, storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. What is that referring to? The coming day of judgment, which we're going to speak on a bit here. And the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous. There it is again, emphasis that what God is doing is right. It's not mean. It's not cruel. It's what is right, the righteous judgment of God. In verse six, he continues on, who will render to each person according to his deeds. That single sentence can sound just fine to the man who thinks of himself as righteous. We've made the point that not every verse of the Bible can stand alone and be put on a coffee mug, okay? If you only read that verse right there, he'll render to each person according to his deeds. The man who believes himself to be good and acceptable before God, he doesn't see a problem there. But the argument of the text is building so as to show that's a problem because your sin is more awful than you have ever considered. And the wrath that is coming against you is worse than you have ever imagined. And then as you read through the text, verse 7 speaks of those who persevere in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality. They get eternal life. If you jump down to verse 10, those who seek for glory, honor, and peace, they get glory, honor, and peace. Now, one little question in the text here that I just want to kind of show you as you're reading it. You know, there's, there's all, all these times where you kind of have to wrestle with a little bit here. Here is a question from the text. The question from the text is in verse 7 and verse 10, where there's kind of a happy note. Is that a way of giving a brief reference to the hope of the Christian? Or is it a way of kind of saying, theoretically, if there were someone out there who all the time was committed to doing what is good and seeking for glory, then he would be okay. So which, which of these is referenced? I believe this is reference to the Christian. So I, I believe this is a, a quick note of hope in the midst of this as judgment is being talked about so that you don't misunderstand to think that the only thing happening on the day of judgment is wrath. There are those who will be delivered from the wrath. Who, who are they? How do we know who they are, God? They're the ones marked by perseverance in doing what is good. The Christian is not totally pursuing what is good and not totally committed and living sinlessly. The Christian is the one who has run to Christ in faith, but scripture so often shows a Christian is marked by a commitment to pursuing what is good. So you do have that, that brief little hope that's given there, but then also look at verse eight as he follows this up. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness wrath and indignation verse 9 there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil distress tribulation wrath indignation i think that word indignation there is real significant that, that word indignation this whole 
happy, feely, gooly, goody, jelly bean and rainbows kind of religion that is out there that is always just every Sunday. We want to make sure everybody leaves feeling good kind of thing. Always gives this impression that God's basic demeanor towards humanity is the big grandpa in the sky who's just kind of chuckling at all those little kids down there and all they're just so good and this kind of thing. And they never give this indication that God is angry. But do you see the scripture show? There is wrath and indignation. There is furiousness. There is anger over sin. And then if you jump to verses 15 and 16, towards the end of this passage, there's reference to God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. You piece all that together, and in 16 verses, there are approximately 11 references to the wrath, the judgment, and the indignation of God. Let's start to piece some of this together here in what's being talked about. The judgment of God is coming upon the world. Now, the Bible uses that word judgment in a couple different ways. The first way that it uses it is judgment in terms of like an evaluation. The evaluation of God. The day of judgment will be the day that God evaluates that there is the reckoning and the accounting of every soul, believer and unbeliever. In Matthew 25, you've got that uh, scene there where Jesus speaks of him coming on the clouds of glory, seated on his glorious throne, and all of the nations are brought to him, and he separates them like the sheep and the goats, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So the day of judgment is referenced to that day when all will give accounting and that includes believers. You, Christian, who have turned to faith in Christ, when the Bible says that you have been saved from the judgment of God, like John 5 says that, you turn to Christ, you believe on him, you do not come into judgment, you have, but you have passed out of death and into life. When the Bible uses the word judgment in that way, it's using it in reference to the wrath of the judgment. But you will still come to the day of standing before God and giving accounting for your lives. On other days, we talk about all that is necessary there. You want to read somewhere on that? 1 Corinthians 3 is a helpful passage talking about the evaluation of Christians and what rewards we will have at the end of that day. But believer and unbeliever will stand before him. The believer on the day he stands before God is in zero danger of condemnation. There will be the answering for our lives. And we're told to live daily. Bearing in mind, I want to live this day so as to fare well on the day of judgment so that God will be pleased, so that there will be reward. But those in Christ will be in no danger of condemnation on that day. But those who are outside of Christ, those who have refused to come to Christ to be saved, the outcome of that day will be only wrath. The outcome of that day will be what is right. And what is right is the retribution for our sins. And scripture says that even right now, 
Those who refuse Christ are storing up wrath even right now. John 3, 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, the wrath of God is with you right now if you are refusing Christ. No, you're not seeing all the terrors poured out. But what is happening is it's like you're carrying around that dark cloud that will one day let loose its rain. For those who are not safe in Christ, for you maybe in this room still refusing to turn to him, if you could see for one moment into the heavenly realm what is awaiting you and what is following you even now, the effect it would have would be nothing short of terrifying. And you would run to Christ. And so consider the terrors which await those who reject Christ. To reject Christ is to refuse God's offer for your wrath to be taken care of. We talked about that for the Christian, the sea of your wrath was rushed upon Christ. But if you reject him, what you are deciding is, I don't want him. I'm good on my own. I'm sure I'll be fine. I actually think I'm good enough to fare just fine on that day. Surely everybody in every country song that talks about how good we are, surely they can't all be wrong. I'll be Fine, what you are choosing is rejection of God's offer for the wrath to be taken for you. And you will bear the full weight of it yourself. And you will receive only what is right. What is coming to you will not be cruel. It will not be mean. It will not be unfair. Now, I'm going to tell you that what we look at from the scripture is absolutely terrifying and the world's always wanting to call it cruel and mean and unfair. But what the scripture's point is making is it is what is right because sin really does deserve this. Mean and unfair and cruel are the wrong words to describe what is coming, but what is coming is worse than what you think you deserve. And by the way, isn't that always the way that it is with criminals? If you spend any kind of time in prisons doing ministry, you will find a pretty common theme there. Almost always, everyone thinks they should be getting less than what they have gotten. They always object, always angry with the system, always thinking they've been mistreating, mistreated and always imagine it to all be so unfair. And friends, it's exactly the same with mankind's thinking about the judgment to come. It's exactly the same kind of thinking of oh, always believing. I'm, I deserve less, but God will only do what is right. But what the Bible shows that what is right is terrifying. If God let you see just a 10 second vision of hell. You know, we're told that Paul was allowed to see a vision of heaven and he was never the same. If God let you see a quick vision of the torments of that place, of the cries of agony, the screams of those enduring the, the wrath of God, 
the effect that it would have would be incredible. I, I believe we would be inconsolably weeping for days in gratitude, in worship that God saved us out of that. For the rest of our lives, we would be like Paul. Paul couldn't speak a sentence without somehow slipping in there. Glory be to God. And living a life of worship and obedience, and we would not be able to shut up about the gospel. And when someone may say, well, then why doesn't God do that? And the answer is, he does in a way. That's what the scripture is. God doesn't give it to us easy, but in the scripture, God is showing us the horrors of his wrath and the glories of what is to come. But he wants us to work for it a little more. But as we grow in Christ and spend the hours that it takes to meditate on truths, so as for them to, to have effect on us, we do come to feel this. What scripture says about God's wrath and about hell is that they are beyond any nightmare. You know, there are experiences that we cannot describe with words. Kind of coming into this Sunday, I was thinking on this and just sort of thinking, I'm tasked with a task that is impossible. I'm coming to describe the indescribable, but there are many things like this. We have experiences in our life that we can't, we can't adequately explain with words. And so we use different ways of trying to help people understand what it is like. The scripture will do this kind of thing. The scripture will employ images, graphic words, metaphorical language, and sometimes it'll, it'll do this. Sometimes it will show the reactions of those who are enduring his wrath because that's a way that we communicate as humans. When we don't know how to describe something, sometimes what we do is we describe our reaction to the thing as a way of describing what it was like. Someone asked, what was the roller coaster like? And we describe how we screamed. You haven't described the roller coaster, you describe your reaction to it. How great was the conference? Well, let me put it this way, for months I was encouraged. I haven't described the conference, I've described my reaction to it. I remember a conversation one time where a, a young woman who just found out she was pregnant was talking with my wife and asked her, what is giving birth like? And my wife responded something along the lines of, oh honey, she says that a lot, oh honey, I cannot describe it to you, it's a pain unlike any other. And you know, I, in thinking about that, I might add in something like, I, I have no idea what that pain is like, but I've been in the room and I could say, I can put it like this, my wife has screamed with a scream that made me sick to my stomach. I haven't described the pain, but I have described her reaction to the pain and my reaction to her reaction, which is showing what are we doing here? We're trying to help explain the magnitude, the intensity of this thing. Scripture does this. Scripture will describe the chilling, haunting cries of the damned. Describe the agonies of the, the reactions of those enduring the torment. Like in Revelation when we're told, when the wrath of God begins to be poured out and men will long for the rocks, the cliffs, and the mountains to fall on them and to snuff them out and to hide them from the face of the living God. In Luke 16, you have that account of the rich man and Lazarus. 
Both of them die. Lazarus had repented of his sins, trusted in Christ. He is carried away into heaven to await the coming day of judgment, but awaits in peace and in joy. But then we are shown the rich man who's satisfied in his riches, never longed to be right with God, never turned to the Lord, and he is carried to hell. And in hell, we are told this. Here is one of the verses in that passage. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. By the way, does that not help? Does does that not add to the misery of that place that they are able to see the joy of what they refused? And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. Words can't describe the intensity of the pain, but we're helped to comprehend it by knowing what do those in hell long for. Can you think of a request that is smaller than a drop of water? And even that kindness is refused because they have now entered the place where the opportunity for God's grace has come to an end. They rejected God and thereby rejected all of his mercy. And the very next thing that the rich man in hell begs for, he begs for someone to go to his family to tell them the gospel and to tell them hell is real. It's really real and call them to repent. If you turn back to the Old Testament with me for a moment, let's see some more of this imagery. Please look to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63 If you find verse two there, Isaiah is being given a vision. He sees something. This is what the prophets would often do, sees something, and then he describes what he saw. So he sees a vision, and then there is a dialogue with God in the vision. So verse two, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? And then God answers. I have trodden the wine trough alone from the peoples. There was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption, notice vengeance and redemption are together, has come. I looked and there was no one to help and I was astonished that there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Before I comment on the image there, do you see the very next verse, verse seven, talking about the steadfast love and compassion of the Lord. Do you notice that text will put these two together? The mercy of God and the severity of God. The love of God and the justice of God. Never ever have that unintelligent view that if God has wrath, then he can't be loving. That's third grade theology. We're meant to grow up from that kind of thing. But picture the image in your head here. Isaiah sees a vision and he sees God. And he sees his garments are red. 
And so he asked, what? why are your garments red? It looks like you just got out of a wine press. A wine press in ancient times was where grapes would be gathered. Imagine a circular trough where hundreds of gallons of grapes were poured in. And then people would step in and walk and jump in order to squish the grapes. This would juice the grapes. They would collect the juice and then make their, their wine and such out of it. This was a wine press. God is asked, why are your garments red? You look like you just stepped out of a wine press. And God responds, I have. I have trodden the nations of the earth which are in rebellion to me in the winepress of my wrath. I have trampled them in my fury and anger and their lifeblood has squirted onto my garments. It is no wonder that the book of Hebrews says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And as I tell you those kinds of things, we're not yet all the way to the point of application, but do you feel some of the ramifications of this? Like as we talk about this, don't you feel some soaring of gratitude, Christian, of thank you God I've been delivered out of this? Does the urgency of evangelism mean more to us? And, and let me tell you another reaction. I can still remember the, the, the day I came to faith in Christ, 11 years old, first time I ever heard the gospel, first time I ever heard someone describe hell and tell me I was going there apart from Christ. I was immediately angry with every church I had ever gone to, which was so wimpy, they wouldn't tell me the truth. That every day we showed up and everybody acted like everybody's fine, everything's okay, and I was going to hell. I was angry. Do you not feel some of that anger? Do you not feel some of that disgust? If this is reality, it changes everything. Do you not feel our money is worthless? Do you not feel the value of eternal things? Do you not feel that my house, my car, all my desires for all this stuff that's here, it's all worthless. All that matters is the kingdom and the glory of God. The gospel is what matters. We need these things. We need to see the wrath of God. We need to consider the terrors of hell. But someone might object. All right, yeah, but we're in Isaiah. That's the Old Testament God. In the New Testament, God's different. God's all about love and mercy and grace. There are some who actually believe that God has changed, that over the years he decided to, you know, lighten up and stop being so much about wrath and anger. Now he's just all about grace and such. The only way you will think that is if you have not studied through the Bible yet, because the Old Testament is absolutely filled with the message of God's love and wrath. And the New Testament is absolutely filled with the message of God's wrath and love. But I'll tell you some of the problem. When Jesus' parables are taught, a lot of times the last verse of the parable isn't read. The verse where he talks about those who reject him and are cast into the outer darkness. God is the same that he has always been. Scripture says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. The theological term for that is he is immutable. His love and justice are in perfect unity, and they have always been in perfect unity. And when you come to Revelation 14, 
New Testament, end of the Bible, Isaiah 63 is fulfilled. And John is given a vision of God at the end. At the end, and he is treading the winepress of God's wrath. And when you come to Revelation 19, it is Jesus in the winepress treading the nations under his feet. In fact, if you will turn with me to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, another one of these passages where we are given some language, I think some literal and some metaphorical language to help us understand the coming wrath of God. Revelation 19, start in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it, it's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of of God. Who is this? This is Jesus. Verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men both free men and slaves and small and great we read passages like that and many's objection of their thought of how they comfort themselves of, I'm sure in the end, I'll be okay. I'm sure that God really won't go through with this kind of thing. You do not see any indication of that in scripture. The wrath of God glorifies God. The wrath of God demonstrates his righteousness. God has not been worried that you might misunderstand him and think of him to be mean or cruel in any way. He simply tells you this is what is righteous and this is what is coming. The wrath will be so intense, so crushing that these images and dozens of other images throughout scripture are given to help us. As a bear robbed of her cubs, scripture says, so God will rush upon the wicked. Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God has already begun to be poured out, but there is wrath yet to come. In the book of Revelation, I believe it indicates a time when hell will begin to be unleashed onto the earth. There will be wrath demonstrated on the day of judgment, but the full and complete outpouring of the wrath of God comes in the place that God has created for the devil and the demons called hell. Jesus taught on hell often, often. One a very helpful exercise you can do sometimes. We, we oftentimes encourage you to read, you know, short passages of scripture, you know, read three or four chapters a day to make your way through the Bible. But it is a really helpful exercise sometimes to sit down and decide, I'm gonna read the whole book at one time. I'm gonna read the whole book of John right now. Take about an hour when you read in that kind of setting, you are 
you are getting a better picture of the full teaching of Christ and the message. And you will see language like this. Jesus preached on hell constantly. It was not just a sporadic or seldom kind of thing. Every village and town he came to, he was herald these things because every soul needs this. Even throughout the Sermon on the Mount. One of the words that Jesus used to refer to hell is a word, is a word um, called Gehenna. What's interesting about that is Gehenna was a location in Israel. Gehenna is Hebrew for Valley of Hinnom. And it was a place. The Valley of Hinnom is where in Israel's history, they had participated in much of their false idol worship. It is where they had gathered together, built an altar to Molech and burned their children in the fire as an offering to Molech. Apparently this killing of babies things is not new. It is a tactic of Satan for thousands of years. But they would gather together and in worship to this false god, offer their children up in sacrifice. When King Josiah came to the throne and he decided he was going to rid the land of this insanity and he swept through and tore down altars on tops of hills, he came to this valley, the Valley of Hinoam, and he ripped down the altar to Molech and then turned it into a latrine, a trash heap, and a place where they carried the carcasses of dead and rotting animals as a way of disgracing the idols of of the land and it became known in Israel as this trash heap and the history of that place held on as a part of the identity of it. Ancient writings tell us that as people would come to this valley, you would crest a hill and then you would look down into this valley. The stench of the rotting carcasses would hit you. You would see smoldering fires burning at sporadic places there as these rotting carcasses and burning trash were here. And this is the word Jesus chooses to give a mental picture for us when he speaks of hell. Jesus said that hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. When you die, your body is placed in the ground and you will begin to rot and the worms will feast. I know that's ugly. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be gross for the sake of getting reaction. But do you understand this? God intentionally ordered this creation in this way. God intentionally ordered it so that these kinds of pictures would be there as a way of helping us understand this judgment and what sin has brought. You do yourself no good to run away from it, parents. You're doing your children no service to hide these things from them. Your children are one day going to see the grave and they need Christ. But here, when a worm eats a body, it's eventually consumed and there's nothing left. Not so in hell. The picture Jesus gives is in hell, the worms eat and they continue to eat for eternity while the man is conscious and the body is never consumed. The fire is not quenched. Here on earth, if a body is burned, it is eventually consumed. It's burned up till nothing but a pile of ash. Not so in hell. The flame burns, 
but the body is never consumed. Jesus said in that place, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here we weep and we pretty much figure that the day is going to come when we stop weeping. I'll eventually get it out. I'll eventually get okay. I'll eventually come to the point that I get over these things. Not so in hell, the weeping never ends. This gnashing of teeth refers to the gritting and the grinding of teeth whenever you are in intense pain, kind of like in ancient times when a surgery needed to be done before the days of anesthesia and they would give you a stick to gnaw on because you needed some kind of outlet. I need something to do, something to exert, some kind of force because of the pain that I am in. The writhing, the gritting, the grinding of the teeth never ends because the pain never ceases. Here, we have difficulties. We have those things that nag us. We have pains, nagging pains sometimes that drag on. They sometimes reach a point where we think we might go crazy if something doesn't happen, but we look forward to a time where I go to the doctor or I take this pill or something relieves it. In hell, there is no relief and there is the haunting thought, I will never, ever, ever, ever have relief. And a thought that may be among the hardest. Can you imagine after having spent countless lifetimes, ages upon ages of time has elapsed and the thought entering your mind that after you have spent countless more lifetimes to come, eternity has only begun. Abandon all hope ye who enter here. Hell is the place that is the fullest definition of what death is. Hell is not the place of unconsciousness. It is not the place of soul sleep. Jesus vividly described the consciousness of those who are there. And will there not be mental anguish? Will there not be an eternal state of depression? an eternal state of sadness and of ever-increasing sin. Friend, have you ever considered the fact that when souls enter hell, they do not suddenly become repentant? That's usually kind of a common idea that when people get there, all of a sudden they begin to love God and really want to honor him and become sorry for what they have done. Well, there might be sorrow over what has been done but we're never shown that those in hell suddenly become repentant. And from all indications, scripture shows that hell will be the place that the grace of God is completely removed. Here we have seen that the grace of God holds us back from sin, but there the grace of God is completely removed and there will be no restraint. Have you seen what certain sins like like lust will do to a man when he gives into it and there's the trajectory of his life of feeding it over the course of decades. Have you seen what it does to him? It changes him. It changes his physical appearance. Have you seen what an angry man who never checks it and who just keeps giving himself the course of trajectory that anger eventually consumes him, makes him into a different person? Imagine certain sins like anger in the heart. Imagine the trajectory of 10,000 years of no restraint. Imagine self-pity. What would countless ages do? 
and what hopelessness would come from the haunting thought. I will be here forever and there is no relief to look forward to. To the Christian, the knowledge of the wrath of God is shown to have dozens of applications. Maybe just the biggest one being opening the eyes to see the seriousness and weight of eternity. But even things in like Psalm 73, we're told that the, the writer was struggling with jealousy for the wicked. He says, because I look at their lives and everything is smooth and easy and their lives are filled with laughter. He says, until I went to the sanctuary and I considered their end. God wants us to understand the gospel and feel gratitude. God wants us to feel the burden for evangelism. God wants us to walk with understanding from understanding these things. And as you consider these, I plead with every one of you in this room, if you have not embraced Christ, does this not affect you? Does this not cause panic in your heart? Are you still going to keep refusing him? Why do you keep resisting speaking the words to him of professing faith and asking for salvation? Why do you keep resisting? Do these horrors not affect you? Run to Christ. I don't know how you sleep. I don't know how you don't do anything but curl up in a ball all day and weep. Run to Christ. There is mercy now. The dam of God's patience is still holding back his wrath. You have been given the grace that you are here this morning. You are being extended an invitation to embrace Christ. Turn to him. Trust in him and be saved. And if you want to talk about that, please find me before you leave. Let's bow in prayer. Oh God in heaven, we magnify your name and we thank you as a people who have been saved out of this torment. Help us. Help us to understand. Help us, oh God, to live in light of these truths, to become a people who never stop praising you and never stop telling the gospel. God, and I beg that any in this room that has not yet been converted, not yet run to Christ, God, I beg that these truths will be impressed upon them in a way that they are not able to think of anything else until they are at peace with you. Please God save. Please God work. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, The Coming Wrath of God. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.